Hello, Ryan here. Just a quick word to say that this episode contains analysis of behaviour, some of which is related to destructive behaviours. So if this episode causes you any undue stress that you otherwise wouldn't experience and you feel like you need to talk to somebody, please visit helpguide.org. There you will find a list of agencies from around the world that are designed to reach people in times of need. Otherwise, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Hello, my name is Pete Goddard. I'm here in the HHE studio with the Samwise to my Bilbo, or maybe the Gollum to my ring, whichever you prefer. You could have just called me your precious, that's fine. (laughs) I just didn't want you anywhere near my ring. Uh, I'm here, of course, with Mr. Ryan Weir. Hello there, Peter. How you doing? Very excited to have an out-of-this-world episode. Oh, this is going to be a very special one. Yep, as you may recall, the last week the Dursleater was slightly fiddled with, and it gave us madness in Middle-earth in the Third Age for a one-off Tolkien. Tolkien special, I suppose you could call it. Yes, and uh, unfamiliar with the world of Tolkien, <laughs> this has proven somewhat of a challenge to uh, familiarise myself with it, but on this one-off special episode, we're leaving our boring world behind and we're heading off to a fantasy land of perilous forests and mountainous caves, of realms of monstrous evil. We're going to meet with a wicked wizard, we're going to get to grips with a grief-stricken Gondorian, and we're going to wrestle with a creature whose passion for its precious was as pointless and pathetic as a paper palantir. Welcome to the world of elves and orcs and hobbits. Welcome to the world of Tolkien. Welcome to Middle-earth. Middle-earth, otherwise known as Enorath, or Endor. It's the main continent on a mythical ancient past version of Earth called Arda. Arda? How am I spelling that? A-R-D-A. Arda. Now, Middle-earth is a big place. It's estimated to be roughly 3 million square miles. That's about 4.9 million square kilometres, which is about equivalent to our own mainland Europe or approximately nine Frances. Okay. Geographically speaking, it has a variety of different landscapes. You've got beautiful green rolling hills of countryside. You've got coastal plains. You've got ancient forests, rivers, mountains, and even a volcano called Mount Doom. Oh, they knew how to name it in Middle Earth, didn't they? A lot of the map remains a mystery, though. There are regions in the far north uh, which remain unexplored, even to this day. And there are rumours of a mythical desert, too. Uh, Over the years, the continent has been home to many intelligent species, including elves, orcs, dwarfs, wizards, dragons, wargs, ents, hobbits, and humans, the worst of them all. Oh, dirty humans. <laughs> as you might expect from such a variety of different peoples, comes a number of native languages as well. So you might hear Elven, Entish, the Black Speech, Rorik, Westron, Valarin, Aduniki, and Kuzdul, which is the secret language of dwarves. Today, though, Middle-earth is almost entirely occupied by humans, of which there are estimated to be around two to three and a half million people. 
Middle-earth doesn't have a capital, but the best fit would probably be Gondor, which is a kingdom described as the greatest realm of men. It covers 716,000 square miles, 1.8 million square kilometres. Gondor is nearly four times the size of France. And the flag of Gondor is solid black background with the image of seven stars over a white tree. There's no national anthem for Middle-earth, but uh, there is an anthem for Gondor. So I thought we'd play that. Oh, for sure. You want to hear that? I do. Okay, well, here we go. No man, no madness, though the this is called The Song of Gondor, huh? and it was sung by King Alessa Tilkontar after the death of his friend. Very different style to the Earth-type national anthems. Less marchy and more... Chill out, man. (laughs) Beautiful Gondor. So there you go. Middle-earth facts! So much has been written about Middle-earth, mostly by John Ronald Raoul Tolkien and his son Christopher, who for over 100 years have collected around 3,600 pages of detailed history on the world. Wow. John was a South African writer, poet, academic. He devoted himself to Catholicism. He fought in the First World War. He got trench foot. He taught himself Danish, Dutch, French... German, Gothic, Greek, Italian, Latin, Lombardic, Middle and Old English, Old Norse, Norwegian, Russian, Serbian, Spanish, Swedish, and Welsh. Wow. And medieval Welsh. (laughs) Of course. Why? (laughs) How else are you going to read your medieval Welsh manuscript collection? Got to collect them all. (laughs) Wow, that is remarkable. I always get impressed by three or more languages. I'm blown away by that. Well, it sort of goes some way towards understanding why he was offered a position as a code breaker during World War II. (laughs) Uh, He didn't didn't ultimately do it in the end, but uh, yeah, still offered the position, which I think was pretty much just given to very clever people. (laughs) Anyway, the Tolkien's aren't the only ones to describe the history of Middle-earth. Six Hollywood movies have been made, four animated films, 35 video games, and a new TV series on Amazon Prime called The Rings of Power. So uh, Tolkien himself once famously said, I'm very fond of a beer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But he's not alone because beer is considered the most popular drink on Middle-earth. Even trolls in the forest wash down their food with beer, Pete. There even used to be a song about drinking in the Green Dragon pub. It goes, oh, you can search far and wide. You can drink the whole town dry, but you'll never find a beer so brown as the one we drink in our hometown. (laughs) (laughs) So in honour of the legends of Middle Earth, a UK brewery company called Brewdog has created a pale ale called Fellowship IPA. They say, and I quote, we've joined forces with one of the most legendary sagas of good versus evil to create Fellowship IPA, the one IPA to rule them all. Uh, <laughs> see, their marketing department didn't even exactly do overtime to come up with that one, but okay. <laughs> uh, brewed with oats and wheat, it has notes of pineapple, stone fruit, mango, and a touch of tangerine. Oh, that's so Middle Earth. (laughs) Bilbo was always munching on pineapple, wasn't he? He was. (laughs) Anyway, they claim it is a juicy hit that'll drive your taste buds 
mad. Oh, that's rather convenient for you. Well it done. Is <laughs> so it's available now at brewdog.com. And you know what? We have some here to try. Cheers, Gaffer. Okay, here we have a well, yeah, it's the Lord of the Rings. It's got uh, what I believe to be Elven script around it. It is. Uh, it's Fellowship PLL. Let's give it an open up. Have a go. Get those top notes of pineapple and mango. Let's do it. Oh. Better be good because we've got 12 cans of this. It is fruity. It's very fruity. Rather tasty. Yeah, I'd say so. Hey, P. Hey, Ryan. So look, I've got the ideal end to this episode. I think we should finish with me saying, now that's what I'm talking about. Oh, dear, oh, dear. That is a pretty awkward pun. Oh, come on. It dwarfs your efforts. No, puns like that are bad for your elf. I mean, I guess it can be hobbit forming. It's shy of madness to keep doing these puns. I mean, if you keep punning, it's going to be grounds for me to murder you. Oh, you're just a sore on loser. Uh, you'll miss me when I'm Gondor. No, oh, well, have a merry old time. Merry? As in a bit drunk? Surely you'll be legolas. Oh, I'll admit it. In the race to the best pun, you're pipping me to the post. Yeah. Yes. Now that's what I'm talking about. All right, do you want to know some history? I do. Okay, well, look, usually we start with early man. Early man, yes. Yeah, well, or early elf in this case. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we need to go back even further. What came before early elf? Well, before anything was the creator of all existence, the supreme being of the universe, a god called Eru Eluvata. We're just wandering around in nothingness going, I guess so. I'm a god. What shall I do now? Yeah, that's right. And he, well, the first thing he does is he makes the first beings with a thought. These are the immortal angelic spirits, which become known as the Ainur. The most powerful of them are called the Valar, and their lesser powerful brothers, their servants essentially, are the Maiar. So the Einar, they sang such beautiful music that the universe is created. And within it is a disc-shaped, flat earth-like world called Arda. Ah. But one of the Einar, a being called Melkor, he encourages some of his brethren to sing a little bit off-tune. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And the world is made imperfectly. Just a prank, bro. He's, he's a bit of a jerk. Anyway, Melkor's told off for being naughty, you know, as you might expect, and he sort of resents it. But at its start, the surface of Arda is lifeless, barren. It's just one supercontinent in the middle of a disc flat earth world surrounded by an encircling sea. This supercontinent becomes known as Middle Earth. With the world created, Melkor and 14 other Einar, they descend onto it. Now, Mel... Well, you can see, imagine why. They're like, do you want to go somewhere? Well, where? Well, there's only one place. <laughs> Let's go there. One place to go. <laughs> yeah, so they descend down onto it, and Melkor says, you know what? This is kind of cool. I should own all of it, right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, the other Valar, they reject this. They're like, no, I don't think so. We're going to make this guy lord instead. And so Melkor's a bit upset by that. And he's like, well, why, why not me? <laughs> you a jerk. You ruined 
ruined it in the first place. Well, that is true. He did do that. <laughs> but he doesn't see it that way. And so he does his best to prevent the Valar from shaping the world, fighting them at every step. Eventually, he sort of succeeds, even though you know he's outnumbered. He starts to get the upper hand. So another more powerful Valar is, descends down to Arda to help the others. And Melkor just runs away. <laughs> he's like, well, that's it. That's me done. <laughs> well, now I'm starting to relate to him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in his absence, the, the Valar get on to work. They construct two large lamps, one in the north and one in the south. In the glow of the lamp's light, animals, forests soon appear... And so did Melkor, again, bringing with him some Maiar servants for support. Went, Rounded up some, a few buddies, huh? <laughs> and brought them with him, right. He builds a fortress, he surrounds it with mountains, and he uses it to launch an attack and destroy those two lamps. With the lamps gone, darkness falls across Arda. And this is catastrophic. Uh, in the darkness, the, the supercontinent splits apart. It creates three distinct lands. You've got Middle-earth still in the middle, but then you've also got the uninhabited lands or land of the sun, which moves to the east, and the land of Armen moving to the west. With Melkor on Middle-earth, the rest of the Valar decide to ship up and move over to Armen. And they build a new kingdom there, settling there under the light of two giant trees this time. I guess they were out of lamps. <laughs> At this point, a uh, sort of novelty lamp in the shape of a tree. Shape of a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So they create some eagles, they create some trees that walk called Ents, and they create dwarves. But the Valar decide that they're going to keep them in stasis, essentially asleep, awaiting the arrival of the first people, the elves. The elves arrive when the Valar illuminate Middle-earth using starlight. Because up to this point, remember, they're lit on Aman using their trees, but Middle-earth and the rest of Arda is completely in darkness. So they sprinkle some starlight up in the sky and the first people emerge on Middle-earth. This starts the period of time known as the First Age. Ah. At the start of the First Age, these elves appear, but uh, they're on Middle-earth. Now, who else is on Middle-earth? I mean, Melchior. Mel- Melkor. Melkor. Yeah, and what does he do? He rounds them up. <laughs> Kills them all? No, he tortures them. Oh. And turns them into dark creatures known as orcs. Oh. Yeah. So this guy really is a jerk. Yeah, he really is a jerk. Yeah. And he's getting jerkier. (laughs) Um, So the Valar hear about this and they decide enough is enough. They travel to Middle Earth. They attack Melkor. They capture him and they bring him home to Aman. Now, a number of the uncorrupted elves who survived being tortured and turned into orcs, they go with them as well, and they settle at Aman too. And at that time, an elf called Feanor captures the light of those two trees in three gemstones called the Cimmerils. After a while, Melkor is considered repentant enough and they release him that seems like a mistake already but i'm <laughs> well it is because he goes and gets the help of a giant spider oh <laughs> yeah he steals the three simmerals and he leaves a man to hide with them in middle earth with his gems he's got his gems and a spider friend now it doesn't strike you that he's repented that much not hugely <laughs> these guys probably should have seen through that but who am i to judge the uh, people of amar right so with the simmerals now gone the world turns dark once again right Apart from Starlight, I guess. Now, apparently out of both giant lamps and glowing trees, the Valar decide to create the moon and the sun. 
seems a bit more permanent this bit, time. Bit more practical solution, I think. <laughs> yeah. And light returns to ardour. For how long, I wonder? <laughs> Metal cores out of the game. Yeah. Yeah. Cover Extinguish that. that. <laughs> Come out with a big fire extinguisher. <laughs> <laughs> they must have been annoyed when clouds first came across. They went, ah, oh, we didn't That's think of that. Milk ore again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so some of the elves, led by Feanor, who created the Cimmerils, they decide to go after Melkor. So uh, they start calling him Morgoth because reasons. <laughs> Started wearing black and he was more goth than he was before. Exactly. So Melkor becomes Morgoth and thus starts the War of the Great Jewels. Mm. So the elves arrive on Middle-earth, Feanor is killed and his sons establish several kingdoms and gang together and eventually attack Morgoth's fortress, which they maintain a siege against for hundreds of years, which results in a kind of a time of peace because Morgoth can't get out of this. He's constantly sort of stopping this siege from happening. So there is peace across Middle-earth. And during which time, humans appear. Ah, where do they come from? Do we know? We don't. They just appear. Have the dwarves and whatnot been let out of stasis yet? Yes. Oh, okay. Everything else woke up once the elves Oh, appeared. I see. The elves came and then everyone's like, okay, finally. We can yeah. get out. Ah. <laughs> so then men have shipped up, as they are prone to do. Were they Portuguese? <laughs> <laughs> Around 13,000 Earth years ago, Morgoth breaks the siege and he destroys each of the kingdoms. But all is not gravy for Morgoth because the elves, which are facing extermination at this point, because Morgoth is pretty peeved, they ask the Valar for help and the Valar agree. They leave Amman and they start the War of Wrath. Ooh. And this ends with Morgoth's defeat and subsequent punishment of being thrown into the void, which is essentially space. Right. Which seems dangerous given that's where your moon and sun is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Morgoth is now in the void. So around 12,400 years ago, the Second Age begins okay. on Middle-earth, right? The few remaining elves leave Middle-earth and head back to Amman. They go back home, essentially. Uh, the humans who helped Morgoth were banned from coming to Amman. But those who remained faithful were gifted an island in the Great Sea. And there they built a kingdom. The island men weren't content to stay on the island, though. <laughs> they learned to travel the seas. We're explorers. It's what we do. Right. And they ventured. They ventured forth. Oh, I've always venturing, those guys. And do you know what else they did? They shared their wisdom and their skills with the other men who remained on Middle-earth. So everybody's starting to sort of get a lot more knowledge. Eventually, though, the islanders start getting a bit cocky. They consider themselves worthy of more than their lot. And they want some of that elven power of immortality. So, at this time, Morgoth's chief servant is a being called Sauron. I've heard of him. And he survived the War of Wrath. So when Morgoth sent off into space, Sauron was still around. He survived. Now, he put himself in disguise and he seeks out a group of elves and he teaches them how to craft some magic rings. These become known as the Rings of Power, available on Amazon Prime. <laughs> in total, they made seven rings for the dwarves, nine rings for the men, and three rings for the elves. Only that wasn't the full total, because Sauron also secretly forged another, more powerful ring for himself. Was this, by any chance, one ring to rule them all? Go on. Do you know the rest? And something, something, bind them, <laughs> something, something, elves. <laughs> 
So known as the One Ring, Sauron's plan was to use it to control the wearer of the other rings. Unfortunately, well-made plans aft gang a glay. They do, they do. They do. And despite being able to control the <laughs> the men, the humans, <laughs> Sauron found out that his power didn't really work on the dwarves, and the elves had already removed their rings because they were smart and they'd worked out what was going on. So basically, men are weak, and if you dangle a shiny object in front of them, you can control them. That's what I'm getting. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, not a massive success for Sauron. In response, he wages war and nearly wins, in fact, if not for the help of the seafaring island men who ride in and help destroy Sauron's army. So Sauron is a bit peeved at this and he swears vengeance and goes into hiding. Feeling super heroic now, the island men grow even more arrogant and they begin to dominate the other men of Middle-earth. They build kingdoms there and sort of take over. Centuries later, Sauron has recovered and he's got so much anger and vengeance in him that he wants to start another war. Give it another go. And guess what? If at first you don't succeed, as they say. Well, exactly. But he loses. <laughs> and he's captured and he's brought as a prisoner to the island. But, plot twist. It wasn't him. It was his plan all along. Oh, no way. Yeah. Didn't see this one coming, did they? He wanted to become a priest in a cult there on the island and encourage others to worship his boss, Morgoth. Ah. Feeling encouraged, Sauron persuades one of the island men to attack the Valar by invading Amman, where he promises they can obtain the immortality that they want. I love a bit of immortality. I'd take it. <laughs> yeah, if it were available. It was not. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, some of the other men uh, warn the Valar in advance of Sauron's attack. And at this point, the Valar have had enough, right? They're kind of like, well, like we had this guy again. <laughs> and so they make a call to Luvatar to intervene. And he goes, yeah, all right. He steps in, he shakes things up, he turns the world from a disc to a sphere and removes the ability for anyone other than elves to access Amman. This destroys the island and Sauron, but not his spirit. Sauron's spirit travels back to his fortress on Middle-earth, where he puts on the One Ring and that helps him slowly regain his strength. So he essentially inflated the world from a disc to yeah. like a flat football to a full <laughs> inflated football. That's exactly what he did, yeah. <laughs> and then Sauron's spirit went off and his first thought was to accessorise. Yeah, obviously. Fashion is key. And it's not long before he's back. Oh, he's Sauron's not a quitter. Back. You have to admire his stick to Right. And so what does he do this time? Start another war? He starts another war. <laughs> I'm starting right. to get his MO now. <laughs> this time with the elves and men. So Sauron is defeated. It doesn't work out well for him. And this time it gets worse because his ring finger is chopped off and the one ring is captured by the men who determined to keep it rather than destroying it. That's why I would have made one tongue stud to rule them all. Much less likely to be chopped off in battle. <laughs> one Prince Albert to rule them all. <laughs> and in the darkness, thrill them. <laughs> Unfortunately, for almost everybody, the ring is lost. <laughs> the humans just drop it and it falls into a river. And this begins the Third Age, Aha. which is our time period. Gotcha. And it starts after the defeat of Sauron. Many of the elves are returning back to Amman after the war, uh, but a few remain on Middle-earth and just sort of keep themselves to themselves. A thousand years later, around 8,000 years ago, uh, five angelic beings called the Istari arrive on Middle-earth. They take on human form and they become known as wizards. Ah, they're space people. S sort of. Centuries later, a hobbit, which is like a small human-like person, finds Sauron's ring, after which a great plague sweeps across Middle-earth. Half the population is killed. 
With the ring back in play, Sauron starts to return to strength. And this time he's a little bit more canny. He's like, I can't do this on my own. So I'm going to like <laughs> try and manipulate some of these people and get them on my side and I'll have a bigger army. At the same time, another hobbit sets out on a quest to help some dwarves recover a treasure which is being guarded by a vicious dragon. On that journey, he takes the One Ring and discovers that it shifts his body into uh, an unseen spirit world, essentially turning him invisible to onlookers. Very handy. He reaches the mountain with the dragon and the dragon is killed and the men, elves and dwarves fight over themselves, you know, over who's going to get the treasure. Years later, Bilbo gifts the One Ring, Sauron's ring, to his nephew, Frodo, who learns that as well as gifting the power of invisibility, Sauron's ring also has the power to control pretty much the entire world. So Frodo joins a fellowship of hobbits, elves, dwarves and men, and together they set out on a mission to destroy the ring by throwing it into the lava of Mount Doom. Ah, the volcano. Sauron obviously tries to stop them. The Fellowship falls apart. Frodo and his friend are left to complete the mission alone, which they do despite huge odds. And the ring is destroyed and Sauron is destroyed. The Fourth Age begins around 6,000 years ago. And this is a time where elves and dwarves start to fade away. It's also a time where hobbits are, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, where hobbits are hunted by men for sport. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awful. But a bit funny. <laughs> and Middle-earth eventually becomes a place solely inhabited by humans. Over the next 5,000 years, the continent of Middle-earth breaks up yet again, and the face of Arda starts to look similar to our present-day Earth. In terms of the future, legend has it that Morgoth will return. I'm sure he will. I mean, he was another one who wouldn't say no, die, wasn't he? Right. So he's going to come back from the void and he's going to launch a final destructive war called Dagor Dagorath, meaning final battle. And this clash will end with Morgoth's total destruction and Eluvatar's second song, which will rebuild the world, but perfectly this time. Oh, the karaoke machine that created <laughs> universes. <laughs> anyway, so that's the history. All right, that was good. Happy talking, talking, happy talk. Talk about elves and hobbits too. You've got to get the ring. If you don't have the ring, how will your evil plans come true? So let's talk about madness. Madness, madness of plenty, I wouldn't wonder, in a crazy world like that. So it's a word often used to describe some sort of foolish or uh, impulsive behaviour. Someone who is out of their mind, unrestrained by reason, unable to think in a clear or sensible way. Someone who is disordered, demented, crazy. It originates in the 13th century from the Old English gourmet, uh, which means being out of one's mind, usually violently. Doctors of the past, they grabbed onto this and they started using gourmadness or gourmadness to describe the mental health of patients that were acting outside of normality. Now, you may have heard of the phrase mad as a March Hare. Yes. It's a popular phrase, appeared in the 1520s as a way of describing people who were acting in a crazed manner, similar to a rabbit running around excitedly during breeding season. 
You may have heard of the expression mad as a hatter. I have. Uh, it describes someone who is demented or enraged. The origin supposedly being that people who made felt hats would sometimes display erratic, crazed behaviour, the result of being overexposed to poisonous doses of mercuric nitrate used in making hats. In 1891, you see the term mad scientist. Ah, right? yes. Yeah, being used to describe an eccentric or insane scientist, someone that is dangerous and potentially evil. Today, madness is pretty much still used by the public. You might hear people saying in passing that they're going mad. The UK leaving Europe was madness. But in terms of clinical space, uh, modern medical practitioners no longer use madness uh, in any form of diagnosis. Today, they recognise that there are many mental health conditions, each differently affecting a person's emotions, thinking, behaviour, their ability to function in work, with family, in social situations. So today, it's just considered unacceptable and even hurtful to use mad or madness in the clinical space. Yeah, you wouldn't, you'd, you'd use it very colloquially, as you say, I think I'm going mad here, am I losing the plot kind of thing. But you wouldn't, if someone was actually behaving in a peculiar manner, oh, I would try not to use the word madness to, to describe that. It's just d demeaning, right? The various symptoms and circumstances surrounding mental illness means that more specific diagnoses are used. Doctors today have access to a wider variety of categorization. These are called diagnostic labels, and they include terms such as autism, uh, schizophrenia, dementia, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, ADHD as it's known, among many others. Now, those labels are useful in treatment and research. Grouping people together in that way helps clinicians and researchers to describe patients to each other in a simple way. It helps them with diagnoses, with treatments, generally to just sort of understand a patient's condition better. But medical professionals are extremely cautious with labelling patients in that way. For one, it can promote negative stereotypes. Patients can be led to feel a certain way socially, you know, if they are labelled with a certain diagnostic label, and, and they might start feeling negatively about themselves. You know, if diagnosed with a specific condition, the patient might see themselves or worry that others see them as incompetent or stupid or dangerous. They might see themselves tagged socially, you know, with a certain negative trigger word but there's a there's an important line here as well isn't there which is if as soon as you put a label on something like that it and it's identified a dis, as a disorder there is a judgment intrinsic to that so there are things that we consider absolutely normal homosexuality now have historically been described as disorders and nowadays you just wouldn't even dream of saying oh you've got same sex attraction disorder or something of that nature you just say well you're just somebody who likes someone of the same gender so even by the act of labeling especially if the word disorder or similar is in it you're you're bringing stigma to it aren't you you know and and by doing that that stigma it can sometimes worryingly result in violence either to themselves or to others one of the other things that, that is worrying about diagnostic labels is the fact that they can be used not just by medical professionals. Most of us have engaged in some sort of pop psychology at some point in our lives, right? You know, we've tried to diagnose ourselves or others. Oh, yeah, he's definitely autistic. Oh, I'm so depressed at the moment, you know. <laughs> oh, my God, she's such a narcissist. You know, those sort of things. We've all been, you know, I'm sure subject to saying one of those things at, at some point. You know, and it might be done with the best of intentions. There is a growing trend in the public to want to 
to know more about mental health and mental well-being. And, you know, and using those medical terms is one quick way of being able to do that. It's natural, you know, to want to rationalize the way people act and behave. People love to label things. It's, you know, it's just an easy way to make sense of things in a complex and confusing world. Yeah, one person's being tidy is another one's OCD. <laughs> exactly. But any real diagnosis can only be considered valid by a licensed professional. You know, someone who holds a Masters of Science, say, in clinical mental health. You know, some, somebody who's passed an accredited program. Someone what a keen who's... amateur who's got Facebook then. <laughs> Twitter, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, or has got WebMD or whatever. Yeah, you know, someone who's completed thousands of hours of supervision. Someone who's passed comprehensive examinations in the field. You know, even then they get nervous about using these things. So importantly, it also requires spending time with patients, getting to know them, understanding more about their symptoms, their behavior, their background. None of that can be done just, oh, I read an article about them. Exactly. <laughs> and I have concluded. So the key thing here is that professionals know there is no normal pattern of behavior, right? We are all weird right? in our own <laughs> unique and interesting ways. We're all strange, right? It's important to understand that diagnostic labels can be an effective way of attributing behavioral characteristics on people, but it can also be dangerous and damaging. So in this next part of the episode, we're going to be looking at the mental illness of several people in Middle Earth during the Third Age. And in doing so, I'm going to be sort of pointing out some of their more obvious traits and making some general assumptions about them. Now, the people we're going to be meet are fictional, okay? I, I've been careful in any analysis to avoid forming any real diagnosis. I'll be pointing out where their behavior matches recognized modern characteristics of mental illness, but I am not a mental health professional <laughs> in any capacity. This is entirely in the spirit of entertainment, right? It is important to emphasize, though, that if you recognize any of the characteristics described in yourself or others, then you should consider exploring these further with a trained professional. Do not attempt to self-diagnose or jump to any conclusions regarding yourself or others. After all, we are all unique and no one term fits all. Correct. However, had Sauron been breastfed, I think everything would have been very different. It's definitely on the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is a good point, though. We are all a bit odd. And uh, if you're taking your mental health advice from this podcast, you should think again. <laughs> As he downs his second brutal. <laughs> Hello, Doctor. Ah, oh, Mr. Tolkien. Good to see you. And how have you been? Well, I mean, I have to say, our therapy sessions have been most effective. Excellent. I mean, writing down all those fantastical thoughts of a faraway world has, you know, it's really helped centre me. You know, I feel so much better. Well, yes, I have to say, your book has been a great success in so many ways. And thank you again for your generous donation to my practice. Well, I mean, I wouldn't have written The Hobbit if it hadn't been for your help. Well, I, you know, just doing my job. And now I'm free. My mind is clear. I'm, I'm focused on the real world. And I need never think of Middle-earth again. But never? No thoughts of a sequel? No, Doctor. You've cured me. I just want to focus on real-world academic pursuits like maths and science. No more elves? No. No more wizards. No more hobbits. Right. I mean, great, great. That's great. But, but, but is the work truly done? I mean, are you sure there's no more thoughts? There's no room for a sequel, maybe a three-part sweeping epic? Well, that is what my publisher said, but no, I'm over the trauma of the past. I don't need Middle Earth. Right, 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 right. 
Right, right. But what about that time your parents locked you in the cellar? Does that not pop back into your mind? With the elves taking you away to a better place? No, not really. Well, it never comes back to dark, dank basement. You never think about the spiders crawling across you. You never remember the fear and the loneliness and the abandonment. Well, I mean... Now that you say it. And what about the children at school dancing around and pointing, shouting, stupid face talking, stupid face talking, stupid face talking. Well, I mean, I, I had forgotten about that, but I mean, I guess it still can come to mind. Yes. Yes, yes, it can. So perhaps another course of writing might be beneficial. Perhaps it would. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, my precious. Let me get you a pen. Okay, right, so this is the first. We're going to be talking about three characters from Middle-earth during the Third Age. And uh, rather than madness, I'm going to be referring to mental illness. So, at the end of the Second Age, shortly after Sauron's first defeat, a council was called by the leader of the Valar. Now, he was concerned that while Sauron had been overthrown, he'd not completely disappeared. He assumed that, you know, he might reappear on Middle-earth again soon. I'll take that bet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so the council decides to respond to the threat of Sauron by sending five powerful Maiar the sub, to the Valar. Sub-angels. Sub-angels, exactly. They were going to send five of them to Middle-earth, basically as like emissaries to help the men and the elves uniting together against Sauron. Now, it was agreed that those five would appear as men. Now, one of these Maiar are being called Koromo. 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 <laughs> yeah, he volunteered and he became the leader of the five. But when he was told he couldn't pick the remaining four that they were going to get picked for him, yeah, he was a bit frustrated, right? He was like, well, I'm the leader, so I should get to pick. You want to pick your team? So then he found out that the four that were picked for him was Aloran, Iwendil, Alatar, and Palando, right? Now, these were beings who he already had some contempt for. He did not think that they should be in his team. And he was especially peeved when the decision was made to make Ulurin his second in command. Oh, this is classic Hollywood movie stuff. Here's your team. Are oh, these guys, this ragtag band. I work alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so gritting his teeth... Karomo and his gang leave for Middle-earth and they arrive separately and they introduce themselves to the humans and the elves and they become known as the wizards. Ah. Right? So in an effort to fit in, they also take on new names. Karomo becomes Saruman. Aluren becomes Gandalf. Iwendil becomes Randagast. And Alatar and Palando, well, they just become known as the blue wizards. <laughs> they, they don't take any names. They just, we're the blue wizards. Gentlemen, please put your hands together and welcome the Blue Wizards. We're so glad to see so many of you lovely people here tonight, and we would especially like to welcome all the representatives of Mordor's Orc Enforcement Community who have chosen to join us here in the Gondor Palace Forum at this time. We do sincerely hope you'll all enjoy the show, and please remember, people, that no matter who you are and what you do to live, thrive, and survive, there are still some things that make us all the same. You, me, elves, orcs, everybody, everybody. Everybody needs somebody. Everybody needs somebody to love. Someone to love. Someone to love. Sweet out of miss. Sweet out of miss. 
Sauron returns to power, which prompts Saruman to form the White Council, a group determined to sort of stop Sauron in his tracks. Saruman appoints himself the leader. He's the leader. He knows he's the leader. He knows the stuff. And the council kind of divided on this. (laughs) Galadriel, one of the greatest of all the elves, she suggests that maybe Gandalf should have the job instead. Oh, that must sting. It does sting. And Saruman (laughs) refuses to step down. He's like, I set this up. (laughs) This is my club. (laughs) Yeah. And Gandalf says, it's fine, guys. Are the Blue Wizards there or are they elsewhere doing something? (laughs) They were playing the Green Dragon. (laughs) It was their open mic night. Anyway, Saruman has kind of had enough of his deputy wizard at this point. (laughs) Deputy (laughs) wizard. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's pretty envious. So he concludes that the only thing which can help him cement his position, right, because clearly nobody else sees that, you know, he should be in charge, is to get hold of Sauron's one ring. He also then becomes a little bit nervous because he thinks, well, if I've had that thought, Gandalf has definitely had that (laughs) thought too. So he sends some spies after Gandalf to follow him and report back on what he's up to. He also, side note, disguises himself for a mission. So he dresses himself up and he goes out spying, but he gets caught. (laughs) (laughs) And he wonders why people don't want him as their leader. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And after that, he sort of relies on others to spy for him instead. But one of the reasons that Saruman went on his own spying was that he could secretly go and buy some pipe weed, like tobacco in direct imitation of Gandalf, who also (laughs) smoked, which would be fine. If only he hadn't publicly mocked him for that previously. So now he's a secret weed head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but only because Gandalf is. Anyway, during this time, Saruman settles in a place called Isengard, where he finds a tower which has a magical glass ball in it. That happens to me all the time. I had one just the other day. <laughs> right. Well, but what you found was a palantir. Ah. Right. This is a ball that has magical powers and allows the holder to sort of communicate over long distances and spy on people, which is kind of Saruman's bag at this point. Meanwhile, Gandalf has been off doing proper stuff, digging, <laughs> digging around, <laughs> saving the world, saving the world. And not shopping for narcotics. <laughs> And he's found confirmation that Sauron is indeed back and up to his old tricks. And so Gandalf approaches the White Council and he tells them. Understandably, the Council propose an urgent plan to attack Sauron. But Saruman decides against it, which confuses everyone, no more than Gandalf, whose suspicion now starts to grow into a belief that maybe Saruman has maybe not got the best intentions for this group. (laughs) Uh, Which is true, because he actually wanted Sauron to build up enough strength such that the One Ring would reveal it itself, at which point he could swoop in, nab it for himself. I see no problems with this scenario. Exactly. And this kind of worked because, you know, a hundred years later, Sauron is indeed much stronger and he's gained some intel on where the ring might be. So at this point, Saruman recalled the White Council and he tells them the time is right to attack. Of course, now in agreement, everyone marches out against the Dark Lord, the battle is had and they win. I've just got images of Sauron in his base with a big whiteboard with like, (laughs) war one, outcome, lost. (laughs) A lot of post-it notes up there. (laughs) 
So Sauron isn't happy about this. So what he does is he devises a plan to to get in touch with Saruman through the magic glass ball, the Palantir, and use this to sort of play up to his insecurities. And ultimately, he wins him over and makes him his servant. So Saruman now works for Sauron. But Saruman still wants the ring for himself, right? But uh, he's keeping that secret so he from thinks Sauron. He's, he's playing an angle on him, does he? Exactly. The best play for him is to get on board with Sauron and help him become victorious. And then suddenly, surprise, I've got the ring. Right. Gotcha. Exactly. So, with renewed vigour, Saruman takes over Isengard. He builds up an army of orcs and he starts making trouble in the neighbourhood. So, much to his surprise, Gandalf suddenly stumbles upon the One Ring and he goes to tell his boss the good news, but Saruman tells him that maybe he should give it to him and that he's also working with Sauron. So Gandalf isn't happy about that. He threatens to stop him. Saruman locks him up in the tower. But he soon escapes, and he tells the White Council of Saruman's deception. At this point, Sauron has become aware of Saruman's ulterior motives and plans to keep hold of the ring, so he disowns him. Now, abandoned by everyone, Saruman gives up all pretense at playing nice and doubles efforts to capture the ring. He sends his army of orcs across Middle-earth to attack, torture, kill anyone who stands in his way. Now, most folks don't really like that, so they attack him at Isengard and the place is destroyed. He's hiding inside his tower and he refuses to come out. Gandalf appears. He makes an appeal for him to come to his senses, which he momentarily considers, but then is overcome with pride, anger, and envy at Gandalf, and he just flat out refuses. So with no other choice, Gandalf expels Saruman from the Order of Wizards, the Five, uh, and he breaks his staff. Powerless and alone, Saruman finally just gives up and he leaves the tower. He wanders around Middle-earth and he spends his final days as a small-time criminal known as Sharky. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. You didn't see that coming, Saruman did Saruman becomes Sharky. <laughs> the small-time the... criminal. <laughs> it's <just> in purse snatching. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and that is, he gets caught, he has his throat slit, and he bleeds to death. Oh my lord. <laughs> yeah, but because he's still a Mayo, right, he's not a mortal, his physical body dies, but his spirit remains. Now, normally, a Maya's spirit would be resurrected again, but Saruman's spirit is refused this, and so he spends the rest of his days wandering naked and powerless, never to return to Middle-earth. Wow, that's a pretty rough end. That's the end of Sharky. <laughs> poor, poor Sharky. <laughs> I wish I'd known that when I saw the movies. <laughs> he turns into Sharky the Perch Snatcher at the end. <laughs> anyway, so having heard his story, I guess the question to ask now is, when did Saruman the Wise abandon reason for madness? Well, right from the start, we can see that Saruman or Karomo or Sharky, as <laughs> <laughs> He exhibits some interesting behavioural characteristics, right? He clearly thinks highly of himself. He's eager to apply for the job of lead emissary to Middle-earth. You know, he thinks that he deserves this position more than anyone else, in fact. But then he's sort of prevented from selecting the other members of his team. And from his perspective, he's humiliated, right? His power is diminished in front of others. His ego is knocked. So Saruman sort of internalises that frustration and he reacts with contempt towards his newly appointed teammates. In fact, he looks down on almost everyone as inferior to himself. In particular, Gandalf, who is made second in command and therefore a threat to his authority. Even though he's a super cool smoker of pipeweed. Right, exactly, that everyone <laughs> loves. Yeah. 
And that sort of kickstarts this obsession with Gandalf, which only grows in resentment and lasts for over a thousand years. <laughs> That's a serious commitment to the cause. You have to admire that, if <laughs> to, nothing to else. To never let it go. <laughs> yeah. So he monopolizes conversations. He fails to recognize the needs of others. He expects unquestioning compliance. He tries to take advantage of others to get what he wants. He's impatient and angry, and he's prone to flying into a rage. At face value, he's a confident leader. He's capable of making difficult decisions. But on the other hand, he has a pretty fragile self-esteem. He's wounded by the slightest of criticisms. His lot in life just never seems to be enough. He craves recognition and respect, but he's not willing to show it to others. He isolates himself alone in his tower. He looks down on everyone around him, especially Gandalf. And it's here at his most desperate that he sort of accepts the dangers of dark magic as his solution for proving his greatness. And it's this pattern of inflexible mental behavior, which is commonly characterized by those diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. I, was, I had him pegged. I, I, tw- I nearly tweeted it earlier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Saruman would likely disagree with this. <laughs> he would think that nothing was wrong with him. He certainly would be unlikely to ever seek help or treatment from someone else. And even if he had, the insult that he would feel to his self-esteem would be strong enough that it would make it very difficult to accept and he would likely not follow through on any path to mental health. Which is a shame because, in general, mental health conditions are usually preventable. They're treatable and always have that possibility of improvement. In fact, by getting the right treatment early, Saruman might well have been able to make his life more rewarding and enjoyable than it ultimately was. Tell me, friend, when did Saruman the Wise reject reason for madness? Well, actually, Gandalf, we don't really use the word madness these days. It's pretty offensive, to be honest. Oh, really? Okay, fine. When did Saruman the Wise reject reason for palantir-induced psychosis disorder? Well, I reject that diagnosis for a start. Are you a qualified mental health professional? I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. So, no, then. Okay, when did Saruman the Wise reject reason for borderline personality disorder? OCD? Autism? Really? Fine. Should we just fight? Yes. So, shortly after the Dark Lord Sauron turns the wizard Saruman to his cause, the city of Gondor gets a new steward, which is basically like getting a new king, if you could possibly imagine that. I can I can imagine that very vividly. <laughs> <laughs> this new steward, a man of great wisdom, was called Ecthelion II. Sounds Greek to me. Ecthelion spent his years strengthening Gondor's defences, generally being a noble leader for his people and becoming the proud father of three children one of which was a son named Denethor. Now, over the years, Ecthelion made many powerful and loyal friends, including the wizard Gandalf and a man named Thorongil, both of which of these he held in great esteem, and he brought them into his inner circle and he sort of bestowed them gifts and great honours. 
But Ecthelion's son, Denethor, he grew jealous of his father's friends, right? He didn't understand why his father was spending so much time with others and not with him. Now, as a young man, Denethor fell in love. He married, he had two sons called Boromir and Faramir. And when Ecthelion eventually died, Denethor replaced him, becoming Denethor II, the new steward of Gondor. Now, four years into his reign, though, Denethor's wife dies. She loses a battle to ill health and she is gone. Denethor, now widowed, is devastated by this loss. He grieves deeply for his lost wife. He never remarries. He just becomes more and more grim and silent as the days go on. He sits alone in his tower, deep in thought, sort of obsessing about Sauron. Specifically, Denethor has convinced himself that Sauron's army is going to attack Gondor, which is a pretty reasonable... It's not a terrible bet, is it? <laughs> yeah. Remember the whiteboard. Next steps, war, question mark? Gondor? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so he's now convinced himself and he's desperate to prevent this happening on his watch. So he decides that he's going to do something about it. So what he does is he he grabs hold of a palantir, you know, that magical glass ball oh, thing. Everyone's got them. All yeah. the cool kids have got them. <laughs> and uh, he uses this to keep a close watch on Sauron. Now, Sauron is alert to this, though, and he sees an opportunity to try and communicate with Denethor. But Denethor isn't convinced. He remains steadfast and refuses all attempts to persuade him to turn to Sauron's side. But exposure to the ball's magic prematurely ages him. Combined like a sunbed. Just like a sunbed. <laughs> Combined with the constant grief he's, you know, experiencing from the loss of his wife, Denethor becomes erratic, unhealthy, both physically and mentally. He still has the wherewithal, though, to put time and effort into making sure that Gondor is well defended. But when Sauron does eventually attack, the preparations just aren't good enough. Denethor has to sort of watch in horror as certain doom closes in. Now, this despair he's feeling grows profoundly when he learns that his favourite son, Boromir, is killed in battle. His remaining son, Faramir, is then severely wounded, and Denethor is now on the verge of losing both his sons and his wife, and his entire country, essentially. So he looks to the Palantir for any signs of hope. He looks into this glass ball, but Sauron uses this as an opportunity to trick him, and he shows him edited highlights of what looks like the fall of Gondor, but was actually quite the opposite. It was the rescue of Gondor and their success. But Denethor, it was too late. Denethor was looking for what he wanted to see, and he fell for that trick. He sees only disaster and he just gives up. So he orders his men to build this great funeral pyre for him and his son, Faramir, who's lying there wounded. And they both lay down on this blazing bonfire. Fortunately for Faramir, he is saved in the last moment by Gandalf. But Denethor, not quite so lucky. He remains in the flames and as his body burns, so his stewardship of Gondor ends. I feel like the Palantir is uh, Tolkien's way of telling us not to spend so much time on our mobile phones. In fact, I'm pretty sure when I watched the Lord of the Rings film, he was looking into it and he went, Oh, it's Sauron. There's a picture of Sauron on the FaceTiming Sauron. Anyway, let's talk some analysis. Like Denethor, most of us will experience the loss of a loved one at some point. Now, enduring that loss can be both traumatic and heartbreaking. Mourning for a loved one is a process which can be confusing. Many people feel that their life will never be the same again. Eventually, though, as time passes, that loss tends to be accepted. Life returns to a place of normality. 
Getting to that place of acceptance, though, is different for everyone. But feelings of sadness, anger, loneliness, hopelessness, they are all really common. The experience of grief is different for everyone. It can take some people much longer than others to get over it. In some severe cases, though, as it appears with Denethor, the grief that he's suffering is overwhelming. It leads to patterns of unhealthy behaviour because of it. For Denethor, his sadness becomes essentially a daily challenge. The constant focus on the loss of his wife demonstrates an inability to accept, let go, move on. The prolonged intensity of his loss results in expressions of anger, of pain, of you know, not being focused. He's pushed ever deeper into a depression and eventually starts to lose contact with reality. These are psychotic symptoms, though that might not just be as the result of grief. His distant relationship with his father, the jealousy he had towards the closeness his father had with others, could well have led Denethor to feelings of abandonment. Those early insecurities could well have laid a foundation for his later behaviour after his wife passes. Either way, it seems undeniable that the effects of his grief affected his mental health over a really long time. It impacted his behaviour and ultimately resulted in a deadly act of extreme violence. By making sure that Gondor was prepared in advance for Sauron's attack and having the strength of character to not be swayed by Sauron's sweet words, we can see that despite his distress, Denethor was at least a competent ruler. And if Denethor, or people close to him, had addressed his mental health earlier, perhaps he would be remembered today for more noble deeds than those that led to his tragic demise. Poor Denethor. He tried his best, didn't he? Yeah, I, I, have, I have a lot of compassion for Denethor. I still think, from Faramir's point of view, don't burn me until I'm really gone, guys. <laughs> so I guess if anyone out there knows me and finds me in a mortally wounded state, please wait until I've actually passed away. I'm to in quite a lot of pain the... already. <laughs> <laughs> Just chucking me on a bonfire before I've gone is not okay. That's all I'm saying. Hey Ryan. Hey Pete. What are you up to? Oh, you know, just watching the old Palantir. Oh, anything good on? Well, there's a bunch of orcs fighting and keeping up with the Urukai. It's Limbass Week in Great Elven Bake Off, and there's a new season of Gondor's Got Talent coming up. Honestly, Ryan, I don't know why you watch all that reality rubbish. Well, you know what Bilbo said? It's a dangerous business going out your door. Yeah, but that stuff will rot your brain. Well, I like it. Anyway, shh. Sauron's Kitchen Nightmares is on in a minute. Ooh, are they still in Mirkwood? Don't tell me Tom Bombadour's been kicked out already. Wait, how do you know that? Shut up move over. Call this a souffle, yeah? Yeah, it's f***ing fine, you donkey. Get the f*** out, you f***ing orc f***. Okay, uh, we've mentioned them earlier, uh, but hobbits were an ancient race of people. They were usually no more than four feet tall. They had slightly pointed ears and furry feet with leathery soles. Uh, they were shy creatures, known for being nimble in movement and having keen eyesight. Native to Middle-earth, hobbits mostly lived in a place called the Shire, a green and verdant land in the northwest region of Eriador. Smaller groups of hobbits, though, existed outside of the Shire, like the Harfoots, who lived in the foothills of the mountains, and the Fallahides, who lived in the northern forests, and the Stur, a group of hobbits who lived in sort of swampy river areas. The Stur had large hands and feet, the only hobbits to be able to grow facial hair. Ah, beardy hobbits. One Sturish hobbit, called Smeagol, spent his early days living as a member of a wealthy and influential family under the firm hand of his grandmother, a wise woman who was 
influential among the river folk. Granny Smeagol. Now, nothing much is known about Smeagol's birth or his schooling, but we do know that he was a lonely boy and he enjoyed making mischief and doing odd things like burrowing under trees just to look at roots. Now, Smeagol was generally spiteful to others, so he really only had one friend, and this was his cousin, a cousin called Deagle. Smeagol and Deagle. You have a friend called Schmeet. <laughs> <laughs> Now, hobbits tended to live longer than men, so they were generally considered to be an adult when they turned 33, which I think is about right, actually. <laughs> I'm wondering when I'm going to pass the adulthood <laughs> threshold, but I understand it's supposed to be a bit earlier. On Smeagol's 33rd birthday, though, he decides he wants to celebrate the day in the company of Deagle, so they go fishing together. Now, while on their trip, Deagle catches a fish that is so large, it pulls him right out of the boat and he falls into the water. Deagle! Sploosh! Look at us getting all dramatic. <laughs> now, while submerged, Deagle's flapping around under the water. And while he's doing that, he happens to spot a gold ring <gasps> lying on the riverbed. He shows it to Smeagol, and Smeagol is mesmerised by this thing. He demands that Deagle gives it to him because he it wants it. It's his birthday. It's his birthday, exactly. He wants it as a present. But when Deagle refuses, Smeagol flies into a rage and he fights with his cousin. Now, the fight only ends when Smeagol strangles the young cousin to death. Smeagol puts on the ring and he discovers that it's a magic ring. It turns him invisible. Now, he's unaware, of course, that the ring that he's just put on is, in fact, Sauron's lost ring of power. Yeah, invisibility is very much the least of its powers, isn't yes, it? Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And uh, you know, he enjoys the secrecy it gives him. He loves the fact that it turns him invisible because he can now use it to listen in on conversations and cause mischief. But this enjoyment doesn't last very long because the community eventually discovers the truth behind Deagle's death and they banish him from their land. They call him a thief, they call him a murderer, and they kick him right out. So with the ring as his only friend, Smeagol finds a new home, and it's a cave in the depths of the Misty Mountains. Now, the power of the ring is such that it kept Smeagol alive much longer than a normal hobbit would by four times. He lives inside the cave for over 400 years by himself. He eats raw fish. I've got my cave, I've got my fish. His bats, <laughs> and his bats and his small goblins, <laughs> whenever he could catch them, apparently. Uh, over the centuries, uh, Smeagol started to begin to hate the outside world. His body starts to adapt to the dark, his skin turns pale yellow, white colour, and his eyes start to grow and become sort of super large so he can see in the dark. Now, it's during this time that Smeagol also starts to develop another personality. And this new personality is basically a slave to the ring. It's much darker, more menacing than his old one. And now these old and new personalities often argued with each other and eventually developed this weird kind of love-hate relationship for themselves. Anyway, one day Smeagol is arguing with a cave goblin when he manages to lose the one ring. He, he's frantic. He searches the cave to try and find it, but it's gone. He cannot find it. But it wasn't gone. Another hobbit called Bilbo Baggins had found it as he navigated his way through the network of caves on his mission to steal gold from a dragon. Those hobbits are always picking this ring up. I think that ring likes a hobbit. Just loves a hobbit. Right. Now, Smeagol discovers Bilbo has the ring. He flies into a rage and he wants to kill him. But Bilbo suggests playing a game for the ring, which Smeagol, who Bilbo now calls Gollum, loses. And to his horror, he has to let the ring go with Bilbo. 
Years later, Gollum finally finds the courage to leave his cave, but he's soon captured. It was a bad idea leaving, because <laughs> he's soon captured by Sauron's dark forces, right? And he is tortured into revealing all that he knows about the ring. Sauron eventually frees Gollum, but only under the condition that he's going to keep a close eye on him. Not long after, Gollum is captured yet again. This time he's interrogated, but he's interrogated by Gandalf the wizard. Remember him? Mm. He's much kinder than Sauron, and he asks the elves to keep a careful watch give him a bat every now and then <laughs> what <laughs> to eat oh i see i thought a bat around the head oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no i meant like a bat sandwich oh i see <laughs> give him a little small goblin meat sandwich <laughs> Anyway, Gollum isn't happy sitting around with a bunch of elves looking after him, so he decides he's going to go get his ring back, so he escapes, and he heads underground. Now, he waits here until, by chance, another hobbit comes along his way. It was a hobbit. Right, and this hobbit is called Frodo Baggins. Now, accompanied by a fellowship of warriors, Frodo just happens to also be carrying the one ring, the thing that Gollum is after. These guys! Now, this is a gift from his uncle Bilbo, and uh, Frodo is now on a mission to destroy the ring in the lava of Mount Doom. Gollum follows Frodo because he wants the ring, and uh, but because he's surrounded by people, he doesn't get too close, so he just keeps track. He follows them around as they go. Now, when Frodo is vulnerable, Gollum seizes the opportunity. He starts to attack him, tries to get the ring, but he's captured and he's nearly killed. Until Frodo, being a good little hobbit, he takes pity on him. And in return for his kindness, Gollum agrees to help the hobbit out on his mission, and together they make their way to Mount Doom. But when Frodo briefly allows Gollum to be taken prisoner, Smeagol, Gollum, feels betrayed by his new friend, and that darker side of his personality, that takes over. Now, that side of Gollum decides he's going to lead Frodo to a giant spider, but Frodo manages to escape. Gollum follows Frodo, and he follows him to the top of Mount Doom, and he attacks him just as he's struggling to sort of drop the ring into the lava. They fight, Gollum wins, he bites off Frodo's finger, and he takes back his precious ring. Yay! Right, he's super happy, he's overjoyed. (laughs) (laughs) He's overjoyed, he's dancing around, he's he's sort of hopping from leg to leg, he's so happy, but he then stumbles, he falls with the ring into the lava, and both are destroyed. Good for the universe, bad for Gollum. So, Smeagol, Gollum, complex person, as you can probably think. There is a lot to consider about the destructive behaviours. The the, the key question, though, is is, are they his own? Are these behaviours his? Or is he being influenced, right? Is this dark magic of the ring influencing him and his behaviour? You know, it's possible that the ring simply enhances the worst of his natural characteristics. We know, for example, that Smeagol was maladaptive, antisocial and violent long before he wore the ring, so it's possible that Sauron's magic doesn't make him entirely a victim. Gollum frequently shows hatred for himself. He calls himself a murderer, a liar, a thief, which, of course, has some basis in fact. (laughs) But, tellingly, he never accompanies that with any signs of grief or remorse. He can't control his thoughts and his actions. He's obsessive. He's paranoid. He shows signs of disassociation. His mind is literally separated into two distinct personalities, which is a trait that is sometimes labelled as multiple personality disorder. But it's more accurately referred to today as disassociative identity disorder, or DID. Now, DID is a complex psychological condition. It describes people who lack a connection in their thoughts, 
feelings, actions, and sense of identity. Commonly, it's characterised by the presence of two or more distinct or split identities that have power over that person's behaviour. Now, it's thought that disassociative identity disorder can be caused by severe trauma during childhood, extreme physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. The disassociative aspect of that being thought to sort of help the person. It's a mechanism for literally shutting themselves off from that experience and giving it to another part of their personality to manage. Now, given Smeagol's inability to recall many childhood memories, it certainly represents a possible but not provable cause. DID has also been found to have been caused by lesions which grow in the brain like a tumour. But in Gollum's case, this seems unlikely because he lived for over 400 years in the cave and any growing tumour in his brain during that time would have caused other more you know, lethal issues for him over 400 years. It's also worth considering diet. Smeagol is not eating very well. Raw fish, bats and small goblins (laughs) do not contribute to mental well-being. You know, they would cause a severe lack of vitamin B12, uh, which is known to cause irritability, delusions, paranoid psychosis, certainly behaviours that Gollum displays. So given his symptoms, there are some people that might diagnose him with schizophrenia, uh, which is a serious mental disorder where reality kind of gets interpreted abnormally. People might experience delusions or extremely disordered ways of thinking, and, and sometimes that can lead to violence. However, with Gollum, many of his behaviours are also experienced by others who wear the ring. So we're kind of back to that question of how much influence the ring had over him and what behaviours can be assigned to the ring versus what are assigned to Gollum and over time what creates new ones. I would observe three hobbits had the ring at various times, but in the case of Smeagol, he had barely a whiff of the ring before he started murdering people. So I would suggest he was already murder-inclined before he even came across the jewellery. It's it's certainly a case. But as with all of these things, it's very difficult to make one diagnosis for, for anyone's mental illness. And in Gollum's condition, there are likely multiple disorders here that would be diagnosed together were we to have a professional and have the time and have Gollum here to be able to talk for himself. There's a very long course of therapy, probably drugs, and definitely a certain amount of incarceration for Gollum, Yeah, I feel. <laughs> well, I have to say, Ryan, I was delighted by that. It was a, a new and interesting thing for us to approach in terms of describing something that isn't real, real. It's real in the sense of it's a constructed universe. The approach is very interesting. These people who in any good even fiction or otherwise a character is a character they have motivations and drives and they have a brain albeit fictional assigned by somebody else Uh, i thought that was a very interesting way of approaching him well thank you very much i'm gonna now head off out into the void (laughs) well if you see morgoth yeah tell him no more war it's not working out for sauron (laughs) leave dagger dagger Ryan, that was remarkable and amazing, and I loved it very much. But the wheels of time march on, and we must look to the next episode. Now, I have to advise you, I have cleansed the Dursalator, and we're back to normal practice. Hooray! So, shall we wheel out the Dursalator? Okay, the Dursalator has been wheeled out, and I'm going to switch it on right now. Are you ready, Peter? I'm ready on the edge of my proverbial and actual seat. Okay, well, as usual, we will start with the place. Here we go. And your place is... The Atlantic. Nice, that's massive. So something must have happened there. Mm. Full of fish, all sorts with history. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, and your time period is... 
Oh, wow. Okay. World War Two. That's 1939 to 1945. Oh, well, that lends itself to some obvious stuff. I'm not sure we never necessarily end up where we think we're going to, but World War Two in the Atlantic <laughs> has a certain ring to it, doesn't it? <laughs> it certainly does. Okay. And your topic then? And the topic is... Red. Red. Yeah. Oh, well, that's... Red uh... in the Atlantic during <laughs> World War II. Could be a bit grim, couldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to doing that. That sounds eminently achievable and highly interesting to dig into. Good luck with it, my friend. Thank you very much. We will see you here in a fortnight. Okay, well, thank you so much, Ryan. That was fascinating and uh, an impressive job on what I thought was going to be quite difficult to do, but you did a marvellous job. So that is our show for this week. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on this show or just say hello, you can reach out to us through our website, hhepodcast.com or email Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. That's right. We'd love to hear from you and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. Or if you'd like to talk to someone vastly more qualified and actual professional about any of the topics we've touched on this week, you can go to helpguide.org and find a list of places that might be able to support you if you're in need. And if you're on social media, the TikTok, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to one of those, you're going to get an alert every time we post one of our one minute animated HHE bites. As ever, we will be back again soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thanks to you, Ryan. Thanks to you, Pete. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to... History happened everywhere. Le Suelon. Pedin Ed Helen. Ewan Edel. Melin Piri Hendutia Shillalaya Lalat. El Salar Erin Lu E. Governed Vin. Pedin I Fifth in Honorone, a Nine Inch Nails UKHE Ni Og. Boi Wayne. Na Lu E. Governed Vin. Lafail. No Veron. <laughs>